The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. We are here. We made it. Uh, yes, through much sickness and uh, how would you like to put it? Uh, I, I don't want to put it. <laughs> Thank you for your patience. We had to delay the show really quick because I unfortunately had really, really bad food poisoning that kept me up all night, mm-hmm. running to the bathroom and just puking my brains out. And it would have been all okay and good and everything, except for, you know, puking my brains out and stuff. Uh-huh. Except that I didn't sleep the night before mm-hmm. because of all the angst of getting the show done, oh, yeah. the series done. So I didn't sleep at all. Yeah. And then so I, I figured, okay, I'll go to bed early. But no, no, the food poisoning kept me up all night <laughs> so i somehow between the bathroom and the bedroom i fell asleep uh, but yeah you fell asleep uh in the middle yeah and almost broke your toe i thought you were dead for a second yes i know <laughs> it must have been really sad and weird yeah. and uh and then i came to and realized oh i need to go to bed yeah and so and then i remember just being covered in all sorts of crap and just laying in bed and my toes all messed up and i got bruises from falling down mm-hmm. and i look at you and i'm like can we extend <laughs> the last episode just a couple days? And I said, absolutely. And welcome to that last episode. My name is Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And this is No Dogs in Space, Beastie Boys Part 6. After yes. five episodes with our boys from New York City, here we are at the end of our journey with the Beastie Boys. Now, when we last left the Beastie Boys, they were still somewhat reeling from the commercial flop that had been Paul's Boutique, especially since License to Ill had gone platinum multiple times since. But Adrock, Mike D, and MCA were not shaken in any way artistically. They knew that what they put out was fucking sick. Yeah. And really, the commercial failure of Paul's Boutique was somewhat freeing because their record label, Capital, just wanted them to run out their contract and hadn't given them a due date for their next album. <laughs> they didn't even, like, ask them, <laughs> when are you going to be done? They're just like, let's just never call them. Yeah. Actually, they, the Beastie Boys like, gave a tape of, like, just some fucked up demos just to see what would happen and capital's like 
fuck it. Yeah, it sounds fine. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> and so the Beastie Boys once again fell back into hanging out, smoking weed, and screwing around, which is how both of their previous albums have percolated. But this time, instead of just crate digging and listening to records, they also learned how to play their instruments all over again like they'd done in the hardcore days, with Ad-Rock on guitar, Mike D on drums, and MCA on bass. Pretty soon, it became obvious that they'd begun work on their new album. Now, at first, the Beastie Boys simply played hardcore songs, but like we and they said earlier, hardcore can only take you so far. But it's a good start. It's a great start. It's yeah. a great start. For, and that, I don't know, that, that I love this new evolution where, you know, they start just from the beginning of like the simplest music to play, which is hardcore. Just like, let's just fucking, I don't know, three chords and a minute and a half and see what happens. So doing it very badly at first, the Beastie Boys decided that instead of just sampling jazz and funk records like they'd done with Paul's Boutique, they'd actually try to get funky themselves. To do so, they took inspiration from artists like Lee Scratch Perry and The Meters, heard here in this tasty little track. influence on an album because it's not like you can say a to b like listen to this song and then hear what that song produced like kind of like when what we do with joy division with like you listen to masters of the universe by hawkwind you're like oh that's joy division like (laughs) yeah all of us we all we're all so musically inclined uh but like listening to the meters like you just get that like the beastie boys are being filled with a feeling you know that they're gonna take into their next record Now, the whole time the band was playing, they were making pause tapes for each other, which pause tapes are pretty much just mixtapes that only take the best parts of songs, which echoes the early stuff that DJs like Grandmaster Flash were doing back in the mid-70s. Yeah, it's like a playlist, but instead of songs, it's parts of songs or Mm -hmm. beats or breakdowns or get-downs or people saying some shit about sticking their dick in the mashed potatoes. (laughs) It's, It's like snippets of things. It's really cool. Yeah, it's great. Now, these pause tapes would go from reggae to funk to jazz to hardcore, and this mixing of genres greatly influenced how the Beastie Boys put together their next album and greatly informed the eclectic style of all the albums they would release throughout the 90s. Now, even though the Beastie Boys were no longer working with the Dust Brothers, they were still on good terms with their engineer from the Paul's Boutique Sessions, who would inadvertently help the Beasties fill out their band for the next album and many albums to come. That man was Mario Caldado, a.k.a. Mario C. And it just so happened that Mario C. was high school chums with a keyboardist named Mark Nishida, who you may know from this tasty little organ lick right here. I use the word tasty a lot, but it's a very tasty album. Oh yeah, I guess so. Time, I'm in the meantime, I'm wild, people 
funny, Mark? Can't beat it. Yeah. Oh, gosh. He's the most talented out of all of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they met They met Mark. They met Money Mark or Keyboard Money Mark, what do you want to call him? They met him back during the Paul's Boutique era, you know, which is like 1988, 1989, when uh, the Beasties were renting that mansion from that TV producer guy, Alex Grasshoff. Remember that mansion that they affectionately call the G-Spot? G-Spot. Yes. So, well, one night while they were renting that place out, Mike accidentally crashed his car into the wooden gate of the house. Mm -hmm. So since they didn't want to get in trouble, I mean, they already scratched uh, Alex's Emmy while playing (laughs) ping pong and who knows what stains are underneath newly moved furniture. (laughs) They figured, okay, we need to get this fixed. So Mario C said, dude, I have a high school buddy who I used to be in a band with who's now a carpenter and he can fix your gate and no one will find out. And that carpenter was Mark. Mm -hmm. And so he came in, he fixed the gate right up, and then they just got to talking. And then they just got along really great, and they soon found out what a great musician he was. I mean, he always brought his keyboard with him everywhere he went, and a guitar. So he's like, yeah, well, why don't we just start jamming now? Yeah. And in no time, they started, like, playing together. Yeah, and this guy, uh, like, Mark Nishida, like, he mostly built sets uh, for TV and, like, movie productions. So he's just some guy. He's some guy. (laughs) He he was playing, you know, uh, with Mario C earlier when they were, you know, teenagers and stuff Mm -hmm. like that but i guess he just kind of started working uh, his day job and then just ran into the beastie boys (laughs) now after paul's boutique the beastie boys all moved out of the g-spot and got their own apartments ad rock's place became a de facto practice space that is until a neighbor implied that they might be looking down the barrel of a gun themselves Ah, if they didn't find somewhere else to play (laughs) there's conflicting stories about that one one of the stories is that like this guy may have played a villain in Total Recall. Yeah, I believe it. Yep, I believe it too. So after trying a rehearsal space where they were forced to set up and tear down every time they went in, which, trust me, is demoralizing in its own special way, the band decided to find a monthly space to rent on the suggestion of Mario C. Now, Mario C. had been recording every single thing that the Beastie Boys had been playing up to this point, hours upon hours of footage. And each time they got something they liked, they'd cut it out, and save it. Save it for later. Save it for later, just maybe. It's all on dat tapes. But once the Beastie Boys got their own space, they could finally stretch out and find exactly what their new process for the 90s would be. The spot was in the Atwater Village neighborhood of Los Angeles, which was pretty damn seedy back then. I hear it's kind of hipster family now, kind of like a park slope. And there, the rent for an entire month was less than a single day at the record plant where the Beasties recorded most of Paul's boutique. $1,500 a month versus $2,000 a day. And inside that spot was a gigantic ballroom just waiting for someone to fix it up. So the Beastie Boys, Mario C., and Money Mark got to work constructing a studio of their own, which they named G-Sun. Yes, the son of the (laughs) G-Spot. I like it. I like it. Because remember in the last episode, we talked about how they wasted so much money by by saving money, by (laughs) uh, renting all these pinball machines and stuff. And I mean, it was fun and everything, but they needed a place to work. So they told Mario and Mark, we're going to pay you more than whatever you're making at your day jobs. Just come work for us and help build this studio. So Mark did all the carpentry, like building a, a separate control room and a small stage for the band to to play in, to record in that big ballroom that you talked about because it used to be like some sort of community center or something. Mm-hmm. And then Mario got 
their business credit card and picked up like a 24 track machine, a console and a bunch of other things. And within a week, they already had the beginnings of a recording studio. So that's perfect. But they didn't stop there because they need something to stir the creative process. Remember, Uh, this is all they're learning their process. So they added a skateboard ramp and put in a basketball hoop, you know, for half court like games and stuff. And and they called it GSUM because the store next door had a sign that said Gilson and the I and the L letters were missing. Oh, I get it. I get it. And with that, it enabled them to uh, create like their own little world, like you said, like like they could comfortably create this music without worrying about time or money or anyone from the outside looking in. I feel like they felt very self-conscious a lot of times when they were recording. Of course. So for hours, every single night, they'd come in and immediately get to playing basketball. And then maybe sometimes they would get up and they would start playing their instruments and or they would come in already with ideas to bring, you know, like like they they bring a pause tape or something or someone would bring in a meters record and have everyone listen to it and and just show each other like what they found, what they like, what they think is cool and what they can work on. Uh, remember, they weren't like trained musicians. So like, as you, as you said, like the outcome was really crappy. They're like, all right, let's play some jazz. <laughs> and they all start at different times. <laughs> but as they kept practicing, they started getting better and better. And, you know, Mario's recording all these sessions and, and, and they came up with stuff together. And this happened. They did this for a period of years. Yeah. About like two years, maybe a little bit more. Just getting it down. Yeah, absolutely. And I get what they're saying with like the distractions at like the record plant and stuff like that. Cause they do have like fun stories from that time where they're like, yeah, you know, we went in a record plant one day and we ran into like fucking Slash. Like <laughs> Slash is in there and like Duff McKagan shows up. Turns out they're recording the video for Patience. And <laughs> it's like they start talking to Duff McKagan. Duff McKagan's like, oh yeah, I was in a fucking hardcore band. So yeah, we were called the Farts. And it's like, oh yeah, we used to hear the Farts on the fucking hardcore show in New York. And like, that's a distraction. Thousands of dollars a day <laughs> for making small talk with people like Slash. I mean, I mean, I, I get it. Yeah, yeah. No, at first the Beastie Boys were thinking of doing an entirely instrumental album, partly because the hip-hop world in 1990 was becoming decidedly Afrocentric, and the Beastie Boys were having a hard time seeing where they fit in with the dashiki crowd. But after they spent a year and a half just playing music, playing basketball, skateboarding, the Beasties got inspiration to rap again when they started getting visits from the incomparable yes. Biz Marquis. <laughs> Have you ever met a girl that you tried to date? But a year to make love, she wanted you to wait. Let me tell you a story in my situation. I was talking to this girl from the U.S. nation. The way that I met her was on tour at a concert. She had long hair and a short miniskirt. I just got on stage dripping, pouring with sweat. I was walking through the crowd, and guess who I met? I whispered in her ear, come to the picture booth so I can ask you some questions to see if you're 100 proof. I asked her her name, she said blah, blah, blah. She had nine, ten pants and a very big bra. I took a couple of flicks and she was enthused. I said, how do you like the show? She said I was very amused. I started throwing bass, she started throwing back mid-range. But when I sprung the question, she acted kind of strange. Because when I asked, do you have a man, she tried to pretend. She said, no, I don't. I only have a friend. I'm not even going for it. It's what I'm going to say. You, you got what I need. But you say he just a friend. And you say he just a friend. Oh, baby, you got what I need. But you say he just a friend. But you say he just a friend. Oh, baby, you got what I need. 
I love Bismarcky. You know, he does say that pretty much all his songs are very autobiographical mm-hmm. and that he just can't help himself. <laughs> and I agree with that. Yeah. And, and good for him. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, Marcel Hall, a.k.a. Biz Marquis. He's another New Yorker, born in Harlem, but raised in Long Island. And Biz Marquis, he started out beatboxing and rapping while hanging around and working with his good friend, Big Daddy Kane, and the rest of the Juice crew that he was a part of. Yeah. So pretty soon he released a couple of singles called Make the Music With Your Mouth and then Picking Boogers, which is a really fun <laughs> rap song. <laughs> it's really fun. Yeah. And uh, you see, like, Biz Marquis is hilarious. And he's like the guy you want to hang out with at a party. You know, you want to meet this guy at a party and just you're his friend the whole night. <laughs> you know, he's sweet and he's lovable and insane and just a wild personality. Anyway, so his singles did well and he released his debut album Going Off and then his second album The Biz Never Sleeps that features this song, you know, uh, just a friend. Mm-hmm. And, and th- there's something to be said for a song that anybody can sing. You! <laughs> Anyone can sing. <laughs> Anyone can sing along to the chorus of Just a Friend. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Biz, Biz Marquis, is, is, he's still, I, I know he's most famous for this song, but he's also like a hip-hop legend in, in many ways because yeah. he's one of the first guys who started, you know, beatboxing or popularizing, like, beatboxing, like, along with, like, Dougie Fresh and the Fat Boys. And, like, honestly, I and as I've heard recently that uh, he, uh, he's been hot hospitalized from a diabetic coma since uh, last year and I do believe he's getting better each day now but you know we just from all of us at No Dogs <laughs> we truly wish Biz Marquis all the best in his recovery absolutely get well soon Biz yes but okay so right now it's about 1991-ish, right? And Biz Marquis meets with the Beastie Boys while uh, they, they met while filming like an MTV show called Pump Up the Jam at G-Sung and they bonded over a game of basketball that day. It was Biz and the Beasties playing a game against the Booyah tribe <laughs> who are these gigantic Samoan brothers. Yeah. So it's like Adrock, Mike D and MCA against guys named Murder One <laughs> and Monster O. I don't know how that game went, but the guys bonded with Biz Marquis real well over that game. So Biz starts coming around to G-Sun while the guys are jamming with Mark on the keyboards and and Mark starts playing songs because he's an Elton John guy. He knows how to, he's a piano man. So he starts playing all these kinds of songs like Jeremiah was a bullfrog and which led to Biz Marquis grabbing the microphone. Joy to the world is that that's the name of the song. Oh, okay. Right, right. <laughs> I, I call it Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Everyone calls it that, but it's called Joy to the world. Well, that's what Biz calls it. <laughs> and so Biz grabs a microphone and he starts singing as loudly as he can. As you can tell, he enjoys singing without restraint. Yeah. And good for him. And then, you know, Biz goes to Mark. He's like, all right, do you know any Benny and the Jets? (laughs) (laughs) Which they actually, can we play it? Absolutely. Can we just add a little snippet because they were able to record this? It was really, it's really fun. (laughs) Thank you. Of course. No, I love, I remember hearing this on uh, Sounds of Science uh, when I got this compilation in high school and fucking loving this. Like, not having any idea who Bismarck he was, but just having a great time listening to this song.
right. So, I mean, I too also sing when I only know just the chorus <laughs> and not the rest of the song and you just kind of just go with it and well, I get it and that's fine yeah I, I don't know I would actually now that I think about like how much I love that song in high school like that might have been the start of like my love of outsider music I'm just like man it don't fucking matter if it's right on key all that matters is the feeling exactly that, like you get like you get the feeling of that song you get how much he loves that song you're like fuck yeah this is this makes me feel good and that's exactly what Bismarck he did to inspire the guys to be kind of be like you know you can start rapping you, you just got to be yourselves when you do that you know that's how you find your voice sometimes you just need that outrageous friend to show you that yeah like put your shit down stop being so fucking worried and just have fun yeah and so inspired by the great Bismarcky, the beastie boys started writing rhymes once again and the song that kicked off the flurry of creativity that will become their next release check your head was the first song on their new album jimmy james Rock with the scratching. Yeah, it's the scratching the shit out of that. Yeah. Now, Check Your Head was an entirely different sort of album from what else was going on in hip-hop at the time, and it was arguably the first complete album of its kind. Instead of mostly samples and a little instrumentation, the Beastie Boys were now doing mostly instrumentation, and a still fair amount of samples, but mm -hmm. it wasn't like Paul's Boutique where it was the entire basis of the album outside of looking down the barrel of a gun. And they were also emceeing on top of the music that they themselves were playing. And co-producing this whole album themselves with Mario C. Yeah. In a way, this was somewhat of an echo of what some people consider was truly the first rap song ever released. King Tim the Third by the Fatback Band, which had rapper Timothy Johnson rapping over a disco-type funk track in a single that was released one week before Rapper's Delight. All right, y'all. Here we go. Clap your hands and you stomp your feet Cause you're listening to the sound of the show shot beat I'm the K-I-N-G, the T-I-M King Jim the third, and I am him Just me, Fat Fat, and the crew We're doing it all, just for you We're strong as an ox and tall as a tree We can rock you so viciously We throw the hives in your eyes, the bass in your face We're the funk machines that rock the human race Skate, down, boogie, shot Come on girl, let's do the rock Slam, dunk, do the jerk Let me see your body work to the beat, everybody, to the beat, everybody. Two, four, six, eight. Fat back, don't you hesitate. Now those are some funk musicians. Yes. <laughs> Now, because Check Your Head was influenced by a healthy dose of funk, it was not necessarily the much maligned rap rock, nor was it even close to the rap metal of the late 90s. In fact, it wouldn't even be fair to call it punk rap. But considering how the band barely knew how to play funk, it had the feeling 
of punk. And unlike the similarities one could draw between Paul's Boutique and Three Feet High and Rising, nothing sounded like Check Your Head. I mean, that one rectify did vaguely sound like Rage Against the Machine, but... <laughs> but there's still rap artists yeah. like bringing their instruments in yeah. and playing it themselves. Like They're the first ones to do that, to do some rapping and then pick up their instruments at the same time. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, it is. In other words, this was alternative without even trying to be alternative, all in the year after Nirvana broke, 1992. Now, the Beastie Boys certainly rode the wave of alternative rock, but it wasn't a cynical ploy that simply capitalized on the next big thing. Rather, the Beastie Boys just happened to have their surfboards in the water at just the right time. And when the first single from Check Your Head hit, they rode that wave to gold record sales within three months and platinum sales within two years. This is wow. that first single. <laughs> funny thing about that like there is one lyric in that song that's like somewhat maligned mike d at one point does rhyme you can't let this go can you? <laughs> you i really i really can't it's like on par with like how i have this like weird uh pet peeve of songwriters rhyming shelf with self like <laughs> I can't stand it. <laughs> what do you do? Do you just throw your phone into the water? Ah! Yeah. <laughs> but in this song, like Mike D 
rhymes commercial with commercial. It's like fucking Ozzy rhyming masses with masses and war pigs. <laughs> uh, but the story behind that is that that was actually a fuck up, is that he was supposed to rhyme commercial with rehearsal but he fucked it up when he was recording it but ad rock and mca convinced him to keep it in like no it'd be fucking funny yo like it'd be fucking hilarious like commercial with commercial it's fucking hilarious man everything's always so funny to them <laughs> and then we have to untangle all this all these inside jokes so to learn about it they really have their own world yeah and therein lies the fucking challenge of this entire six episode series <laughs> and that's what i got yes. and, and i do have to fucking like take a, a moment the research on this series this has all been carolina oh thank this has you. been you carolina has done a fantastic job untangling the story of the beastie boys because they themselves are not what you would call accurate no no and or or, or if they don't remember or, or they want to give a story they just kind of make it up yeah and so you kind of have to figure out what is reality yeah and what is not so thank you it was a lot of work it was a lot of hard work but it was yeah it was I hope it was worth it in the end. It absolutely was. I've done a little bit of research on here, but Carolina is the research master on No Dogs in Space. Let me go on fucking record <laughs> once again. I know I've said it before, but I want to go on record once again to say that Carolina has fucking killed it, especially on this series. Great job. Oh, well, thank you. Well, you know, I, I had you're busy. You're busy. <laughs> I don't have much going on. So it works out. <laughs> But the thing about commercial commercial is that the inside joke that the Beastie Boys fucking ran with kind of overshadows what could have been one of Mike D's best lyrics. Here's the actual full lyric. Listen to this. Everybody rapping like it's a commercial. Acting like life is a big commercial. So this is what I got to say to you all. Be true to yourself and you will never some positive shit yeah yeah life is a big commercial <laughs> no it's not you're everyone's rapping like it's a big commercial acting like life is a big rehearsal no that's wrong that's bad no no but mike t told me <laughs> all right you're supposed to be true to yourself and all you'll right. never fall that's the whole thing being true to yourself that's that's very positive and in fact like check your head as a whole it's almost ridiculously positive like yeah. especially in a time when the alternative hit scene that the beastie boys join was made Made up of songs like Losing My Religion, Under the Bridge, and Jeremy. Okay, that's R.E.M., Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Pearl Jam. Not everyone is a 90s kid like we are. I know, I know. I, I figure people, I, I wonder how many, I would like, if there, if you were lost when I said Losing My Religion, Under the Bridge, and Jeremy, email us at nodogsinspace at gmail.com. I want to take a fucking poll. Okay, all right. There's, I'm sure there's plenty. I'm sure of it. Now to me, this proves that the Beastie Boys weren't jumping on any sort of alternative bandwagon. And that's proved further by the equally positive Gratitude, which was made up of a riff that MCA had written years before and had recorded as a demo with his side band, Brooklyn. Oh, I love this. Yeah, great. Fuzz. Fuzz bass.
Maybe they've been a little bit influenced by Rage Against the Machine. Maybe. And remember, a lot, a lot of pot. Yeah. <laughs> they, they would smoke a lot. Sometimes they would drop acid. You mm-hmm. know, uh, I know MCA did that a lot earlier on, and then he kind of just started to go down a more sober yeah. route later. But uh, a lot of mushrooms too. There mushrooms. was a lot of mushrooms. Yes, they yes. did play basketball while on mushrooms a lot, which sounds fucking horrible. I'm gonna talk about that later. <laughs> But yes, but you, what you said before is true. Like the whole positive message. I mean, the, the name of the song is Gratitude. Yeah. You know, and this is like around the time where MCA, he's it's sometime during the break of Check Your Head. He took a long trip to Nepal to just do some snowboarding. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like it was just a vacation. And he went all the way to Asia to get dropped from a helicopter onto a mountain. And then you have to, I guess, snowboard down the mountain or die, I guess. I'm not (laughs) sure how that works. But that was his thing. That's Mm -hmm. what he loved doing. So on this particular trip to Nepal, it kind of veered into a different direction when MCA ran into a group of Tibetan Buddhists out there in the middle of the mountains, mm-hmm. <laughs> just out there in the Himalayas. And now th- these Tibetans, they weren't snowboarding or anything. They were refugees. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I know. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. Um, they were refugees. Totally radical <laughs> Tibetan monks. <laughs> exactly. And they... fucking doing the do in the Himalayas. Oh, God. You're going to feel so bad in a minute. <laughs> these radical Tibetan refugees. Mm-hmm had just crossed the Himalayas into Nepal, which borders Tibet. Ah. And they had just escaped from religious persecution by the Chinese authorities who had occupied Tibet since the early 1950s. Ah, so they're not doing the do. No, (laughs) no, they are not. (laughs) Well, maybe they are now. now. Because what was going on with the, you know, people in Tibet is that there's been numerous accounts of Tibetans being tortured or kidnapped and and plenty of other human rights violations and and, uh, happening since the early 50s. And and these refugees that MCA just saw right there during in the middle of his snowboarding trip uh, they were celebrating their freedom, you know, and, the, and they were sharing their story with MCA. And he was truly moved by these guys because they were just like, yeah, we had to like leave the only home we have to avoid being killed or being tortured or being imprisoned for years, you know. But they were still nonviolent, even when facing torture or death. And so that really struck a chord with MCA. And like the next day he went to a like a Tibetan area in Nepal and he sat in like a monastery for a long time, kind of like watching the rituals and contemplating a lot, you know, because he was very intrigued by these people's beliefs. And and so pretty soon he started spending time studying Buddhism and, and later became a practicing Buddhist. I, I mean, it was a slow process. It took many years with trips to India and meeting the Dalai Lama and, and you know, the Dalai Lama being the Tibetan spiritual leader who uh, has been in exile since 1959. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and MCA just spending so much time with these people and and learning about everything and just kind of maybe I, I mean I don't know this guy but from what I could see it, maybe he was letting go of that anger he had for so long that mm-hmm. we've seen throughout these last few episodes you know so that trip was definitely the beginning of a like of a new spiritual journey for MCA yeah and good for him yeah good for him we all got to figure out some way to deal with this anger I know or, or <laughs> the existential nightmare of like what happened <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, well, one leads to the other, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so upon the release of Pass the Mic as the first single in April, the Beastie Boys toured Check Your Head for the rest of the year, playing over 100 dates worldwide with openers like L7, Firehose, Mike Watts cool. Band, which is fucking great. Check it out. House of Pain, briefly, Rollins Band, and a group that matched the tone of Check Your Head era Beastie Boys perfectly. Cypress Hill. Mm. Fuck it, love Cypress Hill. Well, I'm an alley cat. Some say a dirty man. On my side is my gut. See, I'm all an ass. Spitting out fuck shots. Boy, I'm going to wet ya. Running hot, but I'm still coming to get ya. Thinking like a peace mode coming on a homicide. You talking shit. Trying to take me for a ride. I'm not a bad guy, but I'm the fucking feel. On a trigger when my hands up on a steel Letting out a bullet This is going boom yeah. You're stuck in my hood So what you gonna do now Being the hunted one is no fun Here I come son Yo I think you better run Better run more and move a little faster Second of thought And I'm coming to blast you With my sawed off shotgun Hand on the palm Left hand on the 40 Pump it on Fuck my shotgun The niggas didn't jump La 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 They are so much more than insane in the membrane. I know. I've seen them live once. They opened for The Offspring when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And man, I there was just so much just clouds and smoke. <laughs> and I'd never smoked before. And yeah. it was just insane. So, I, I mean, eventually I, I got into the groove. Yeah. Let's just say there was not a lot of ventilation in New Jersey. <laughs> oh, seriously, that album right there, self-titled first album and... Uh, Fucking Black Sunday, like check out Black Sunday. It is a legitimately good album outside of the gigantic multi-platinum hit that skyrocketed them to fucking stardom. Now, the Beastie Boys were enjoying popularity on their own terms for pretty much the first time in their careers. But even after they proved to literally the world that they weren't a fluke, the process that they created for Check Your Head refused to rest. Energized by the tour, instead of exhausted like they'd been after a license to ill, the Beastie Boys returned to the studio almost immediately after coming home. And in just six months, the Beastie Boys had laid down all of the tracks for perhaps their best, and certainly my favorite album of theirs, Ill Communication. Mike. 
I love Sure Shot. Yeah. And um, DJ Hurricane, remember they're DJ since licensed to ill days. And uh, they were hanging out with DJ Hurricane at one point where uh, I guess something sparked in them because they called Hurricane up like at three in the morning <laughs> and they woke him up and they're like, hey, can you say that Sure Shot thing again that you said earlier today? And he's just like, all right. And he just, <laughs> oh, it's the Beast Boys are calling me. I know, honey, I know. <laughs> so he just sits up in bed and he says, because you can't, you won't, and you don't stop. <laughs> Mike D, come and rock the shore shot. And they're like, cool, now do it with Ad Rock. Now do it with MCA. He's like, all right, on the phone? Yeah, on the phone. All right, okay, cool. And it's all, you can hear the hook from the recording because they were recording him on yeah. the phone, through the phone. He didn't even have to come into the studio. He recorded him, and uh, you can hear it on the song. And that's so what great. makes that, that's part of what makes that song cool, is yeah. that, like, that distorted phone voice. They're sampling their own phone call. <laughs> I love this. So yes, yeah, so Adrock, MCA, and Mike D, uh, like you said, like they were so energized to get back into their next album. They were already were actually starting to work on it while they were on tour. Yeah. Would check your head. Like every city they'd stop at, they'd go to like a record store and pick up whatever records sounded cool, like like jazz, reggae, rock music, whatever, and uh, and then just start you know sampling them and figuring out what to do next. Like they were ready. So armed with records and tapes and their musician friends, they they fly over to New York City to work on the instrumentals at Tim Pan Alley Studios because, and I read this somewhere, they made G-Sun too much fun. <laughs> and therefore, it was distracting to work there yeah. at their workplace. I get that. And so they're like, okay, we're, we're going to focus on the instrumentals here. We're going to say hi to our moms and dads. And then uh, after like about a month uh, and, you know, focusing on all that stuff, they fly back to L.A. to the fun party zone of G-Sun. <laughs> G and they and that's when they started doing the vocals and the hip hop stuff there. Uh, like the more fun stuff, I guess, you know, bring in Biz because he's going to be on every record for the next three albums. <laughs> and, he's a good luck charm. I mean, every album. Yes. Yes. He actually is a good luck charm. It's he's a, a great <laughs> luck charm. <laughs> The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Now, ill communication was somewhat of a culmination of everything the Beastie Boys had learned up to this point. And while there were certainly fantastic tracks that were all the Beasties on their instruments, other songs returned to the sample-heavy style of Paul's Boutique, like the oh, inimitable so good. Root Down. Yes.
I bought the single with my babysitting money to root down because they had all these like different remixes and stuff. Yeah. It was great. And I listened to them all because it was expensive to me. Yeah. So I had to listen to them all, even if I didn't feel it. It's like I paid for these whatever four or five songs that are. Why is it a single? There's five songs. Wow, a CD single. That had to have been what, $7.99? Some, it was expensive. That's three hours of babysitting, man. Well, how many pesos are those? <laughs> That's a real question. That is true. Uh, you were buying the Mexican import there. Yep. <laughs> now, one song on the album that tends to go under the radar a bit is the Beastie's second collaboration with another rap artist outside of Bismarck Key. On Ill Communication, the Beastie Boys snag Q-Tip. Key yeah. of a Tribe Called Quest. Yes, I love Tribe Called Quest. Let's listen to a tribe song. Okay, so um, let's start with this. What's, what's your name? Cutie. Uh, where are you going? Who are you going with? Got Ollie up to see what was going down Told him I'd pick him up so we could drive around Took the Dodge Dart, a 74 My mother left the yard, but I needed one more Shahid had me covered with a hundred green backs So we left Brooklyn and we made big tracks Drove down the belt, got all the conduit Came to a tow, we paid and went through it Had no destination, we was on a quest Ali laid in the back so he can get rest Drove down the road for two days and a half The sun had just risen on a dusty path Just then a big had caught my eye A mirror for Sabrero who was four feet high I pulled over to ask where he was at His index finger, he tipped off his hat El Segundo, he said, my name is Pedro If you need directions, I'll tell you pronto Need a civilization, some sort of reservation He said a mile south, there's a fast food station Thanks to y'all as I started the motor Ali said, damn, what you drive so far for? Well, describe to me what the wallet looks like Anyway, mm. a gas station. I love that song. It just energizes me. The whole album does. Yeah, it's Tribe. It just makes you feel good, man. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the, the story of A Tribe Called Quest starts with Q-Tip, who's from Queens, baby. Hey, another Queens boy. There's, there's a million of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he was born and raised there in Queens, St. Albans. What? Someone really does need to write a book about like the cultural, like how much of a cultural impact Queens has really had on America yeah. over the last like 30 to 40 years. Not even just the 20th century impact of Queens on American culture is fucking staggering. Yeah, I would but buy that book. I'd buy that book too. Hell, maybe we should do a whole fucking podcast series that's just Queens. Oh, great. More, <laughs> more work. <laughs> Queens. Well, who knows? Maybe, maybe. Okay, so uh, Q-Tip's from Queens and he uh, he was raised there where he's you know influenced so much by his father who was a big record collector, especially big into jazz music. So he's listening to all kinds of different things and Q-Tip's making pause tapes too. He's using his dad's record collection and he's doing this like 11, 12 years old. Yeah. And then by the time he's about 14, he starts high school in downtown Manhattan and there he meets the Jungle Brothers and they become best friends. And the Jungle Brothers then introduce him to DJ Ali Shahid Mohammed, 
they become best friends. And uh, Ali and Tip start making that sweet, sweet music together very, very quickly. Yeah. In their bedroom, just 14 years old, just recording it on a four track. It was awesome. So by the time they're 17 years old, they're now a music group called Tribe with Tip's childhood friend, Fife Dog, and Fife's friend from the neighborhood, Jerobi White. Okay, great. And they're rehearsing every Saturday, doing kind of okay, not not always great. Uh, yeah. You know, Jazzy J. Uh, remember Jazzy J from Teela Rock's It's Yours song that we talked about? Absolutely. Yeah, he came by and watched them rehearse once and said, well, it's not great, <laughs> but, you know, keep going, keep going, but but it's not great. Yeah. I don't know, does that help? <laughs> so, Tip, you know, he took that, fine, okay. Uh, but... Tip's friends, uh, the, you remember the Jungle Brothers, they definitely believed in them anyways. And even one of them said, Mike G from the Jungle Brothers said, hey, you know, I think you really got something here, though. Maybe I should talk to my uncle about you guys. Uh, you know, uh, DJ Red Alert? Yeah, that's my uncle. And everyone else is like, what? <laughs> DJ Red Alert is your uncle? Yeah, DJ like, Red Alert was fucking huge. Big deal. Huge, legendary DJ, radio DJ from Kiss FM. Like that DJ Red Alert? <laughs> and DJ Red Alert is also like, yeah, I'm his uncle. And funny thing is, Jazzy J is my cousin. <laughs> and they're all like, this is some real Star Wars shit. Everyone's related to each other. Queens is such a small town. <laughs> is it? Is it? So, so Q-Tip comes along with the Jungle Brothers and he helps them produce their demo, a song called The Promo that he raps on too. And on the demo, Q-Tip starts you know, his rap with his name, like that's what you do. You, you say your name, what group and whatever you're in. So he goes, I'm Q-Tip from a group called Quest and Africa Baby Bam from the Jungle Brothers, the other Jungle Brother. Mm -hmm. He said, hold it, hold it right there. How about instead you say tribe called Quest and that could be the whole name. Yeah. All right, perfect. Okay, so A Tribe Called Quest releases their first album in 1990, People's Instinctive Travels and the Path of Rhythm. It doesn't necessarily roll off the tongue. No, no, but Q-Tip's <laughs> like, I liked it and it stays. Yeah. And it features that song, Left My Wallet in El Segundo that we just heard. And Can I Kick It, where uh, Q-Tip samples Lou Reed's Take a Walk on the Wild song. It's a really great song. Mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, Tribe, they continue to record a few more songs with Q-Tip rapping and co-producing because Q-Tip is a genius producer. Producer. I mean, Q-Tip worked on Nas's Illmatic album. Like, he's legit. And, and he gave Biz Marquee the best advice I've ever heard, right? Because when Biz Marquee was recording, you know, remember Just a Friend? Mm -hmm. uh, you know that part of the song? You, yeah. you got, got what I need. Yeah. Biz's original idea for that chorus was, you... You must be on speed. <laughs> because that's what he was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> about blah, blah, blah. You know? And Q-Tip told him, like, you can't say that. Yeah. I'm sorry. You just can't say that. And Bismarck, he's like, fine, I guess I'll change it to the original. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then it became a classic. So, you know, I mean, he's got the knowledge. He's got that taste. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, okay. So where are we? Okay. So now it's around 1993 and Q-Tip is buddies with the Beastie Boys because of their shared love of record collecting and pause making and, and basketball. Uh, they play basketball together all the time at G-Sun with the Jungle Brothers too. And sometimes they, like you said, they play on mushrooms. <laughs> And one just, day... Sounds difficult. Unnecessarily difficult. <laughs> one day, Q-Tip is really high. I think on mushrooms. He said he called it dumb high. Yeah. And when he was in the studio and he heard a track that Mike D was working on, just a simple beat, and he liked it. He's like, this sounds amazing. It's very simple, but I love it. You know, hand me a microphone. And so the beasties are like, oh, oh awesome. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they like run around him. They get him all set up in the vocal booth and they're like, okay, this is going to be really cool. Mario Press record. All right. Awesome. And so Tip 
freestyles for like a few minutes and they got it all on tape. Then the guys spliced like the verses up of what he rapped, like whatever he freestyled and made up in his head at that Mm -hmm. time. And they wrote their rhymes around his freestyle and just like a simple cut and paste edit job there. And bam, you have this awesome song. Get it together. It's the second best track on the album. Check it out. One, two, one, two, keep it on. Listen to the shit because we keep it till dawn. Listen to the ass track, got it going on. Listen to the ladies, come on and let me spawn. On your eggs, then you go up the river. Listen to the ass jack, that freaky nigga. Now I'm that rock and I shock and I tick and I talk and I can't stop with the body rock. See, I got hot like John Stars. He is mad spots. Pass me the mic and I'll be rocking the whole bar. On the M to the C to the A and it's a boss. The rhymes that we boss on the top of the loss. <laughs> And my mouth is not blood, but fuck it, let me get down to the rhythm. Yes, I get funky and I shoot it on my chism like John Bones, the X-rated nigga. Listen to the shit, cause I am the ill figure. Nobody's getting any bigger than this. Phone is ringing, oh my god. So Q-Tip, he didn't hear any of this until he, the album actually came out. <laughs> oh, he was like, he, yeah, the fucking rhyme about jizz. Like, make sure that's on the fucking album. <laughs> no, he was just really high. He just did it. And then he went, you know, to bed and probably took a nap and woke up. It's like, I, I, what happened? You know? So Q-Tip said, like, Mike got me super duper high. And the next time I heard it, it was out. So... <laughs> It's great. Yeah, it was a single from the album. Yes. <laughs> but of course, Ill Communication is also the album that has the Beastie Boys song that will most likely be the one that's still around after everyone listening right now is dead and gone. Oh. Remember I said Get It Together is the second best song on the album? This is the best song on the <laughs> album. I agree. See, part of what makes this a great song is that it's just so goddamn simple, like many of the greatest songs are. It's built around a bass riff, so primal and so catchy, it's hard to believe that it took until 1993 for anyone to find it. And it's this fuzzy-ass bass line that forms the basis for the best punk song the Beasties ever wrote. Sabotage! It's wonderful. Yeah. It's on every playlist I've ever made. Like my whole life, probably. Yeah. Actually, it didn't take until 1993 for that riff. Pink Floyd did it in 1968 on A Saucer Full of Secrets. Oh, yeah, that's fine. But it's still great. Yeah, it's still great. It's very interesting.
don't got that fuzz though. No, it doesn't have that. Ev- <laughs> it doesn't have that everything. Yeah, it's similar. It's not the exact same one. It's definitely similar, but yeah, I mean, it's fucking. It's MCA's fucking crown. That bass riff is his crowning achievement. <laughs> yeah. But at any rate, the origin of the song Sabotage has been somewhat of a mystery for years. And considering how it's one of the most loved rock songs ever, people are naturally curious as to what it's all about. Originally, people thought that Sabotage was about a physical altercation Ad-Rock had with the crew from the tabloid TV show Hard Copy at the funeral of his friend River Phoenix. And the whole song was Ad-Rock screaming at the paparazzi after he'd been sentenced to 200 hours of community service. It was a fight. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently. Yeah. (laughs) But the real story was actually just told in the recent Beastie Boys book. Quite simply... The song is a dig on their producer, Mario C. Ah, fuck you, Mario C. Again, it's a fucking inside joke. Yeah, of course it is. (laughs) Of course it is. So the music for Sabotage itself was done in literally a day, with MCA pretty much pulling the bass line out of the part of his brain that hides Pink Floyd bass riffs, while the other two quickly added drum stabs and a simple yet effective guitar part. But the thing about ill communication is that the Beastie Boys were indecisive when it came to finishing songs, and Sabotage sat for months without vocals, without being completed, which greatly frustrated producer Mario C. So, Adrock wrote the lyrics of Sabotage to basically make fun of the guy who was always yelling <laughs> at them to finish songs, the one who was constantly sabotaging their artistic process. And the whole thing was sung and finished in one night, as the last song on ill communication to be completed. But really, the song itself is only half the story. The other half is that Sabotage also has, and I'm not gonna say quite possibly, I'm gonna say Sabotage has definitely the best video of the entire 1990s, which puts it in the running for greatest video of all time. Yeah, yeah, great. Awesome, awesome music video. I don't know how else to like put it. It's it's, it's so good. It still makes me laugh. Yes, until of of course until Lil Nas X came around. And <laughs> obviously, now that's the greatest video. Obviously, but I'm more into practical effects. So. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. So Adrock originally came up with this idea of the three of them dressing up in 1970s undercover cops outfits and with wigs and mustaches and everything, sitting in a car eating donuts, like as a photo shoot idea. And they're like, this would be a really cool, but then eventually it morphed into the premise for their sabotage music video directed by Spike Jones. It's brilliant. Yes. Spike Jones, they, we all know he's a famous Oscar winning director who directed like being John Malkovich adaptation where the wild things are and all that stuff. But back then he first started as a photographer, which is how he met the Beastie Boys, you know, doing a photo shoot for them. And then a little time later, Spike moved on to directing music videos like this one, like yeah. Sabotage. So the guys, they went to Kmart for their wardrobe and and then to a wig and beauty supply store where they proceeded to purchase every wig and money mustache that was shown to them (laughs) we will take it all we're gonna take it all and spike jones even said actually we did that before we even knew we were gonna do the video because we're weird like that (laughs) well that's what the beastie boys were known for is playing dress up yeah they love there's no band on earth that loves playing dress up as much as the beastie boys did throughout their entire career of course they found a fuck you know after they found that fucking locked closet full of 70s disco clothes it was over they were doing it beforehand (laughs) 
remember the, the three bad Jewish brothers? That's the, right. The, the rapping guys? Yeah. <laughs> they always, always enjoyed doing these kinds of things. So so it was really easy. So they, they already, they're already very comfortable in their new costumes. <laughs> so so they filmed this music video, very low budget, very guerrilla style, you know, no permits, uh, just pulling over and shooting some really quick scenes and then driving around again and and then staying in character for the entire shoot. <laughs> and it's great. Please watch it. It's on YouTube. It's everywhere. Yeah, the, the whole premise of the video is that it's the credits for a 1970s cop show called Sabotage. Exactly. <laughs> and they're all different characters. It's yeah, awesome. Yeah. And that video with that song exploded and it became a massive hit and was always aired on MTV. It was everywhere. It was even nominated for five. MTV Video Music Awards. <laughs> Back when that meant something. If it ever did. <laughs> I think if it ever did is probably the right answer. Yes. <laughs> so they were nominated for five awards and they lost in all five categories, <laughs> including Best Director for Spike Jones. They lost out R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts. Oh, God. I know. If you also want a video that's funny in a different way, uh, watch the video for R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts. It's very 1990. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. But uh, so... They lost to R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts, which caused a big C mm -hmm. when MCA's uncle, Nathaniel Hornblower. Are we doing this? Is this how we're going to do this? The infamous Swiss <laughs> film director dressed in full lederhosen uh -huh. and orange hair with round glasses right. stormed the stage while Michael Stipe was collecting his Moon Man Award. Uh -huh. And he got on the mic and he berated the audience. Mm -hmm. And Nathaniel told him how this was an outrage. And he's from Switzerland. <laughs> and since he was a small boy, he's always dreamed of Spike winning this award. Uh -huh. And everyone needs to know that this is a farce. And he had all the ideas for Star Wars and everything. <laughs> And he was escorted off stage by security. It was MCA dressed up in a fucking lederhosen outfit. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> this was like, it was a great bit. No, like, it, it's from Appenzell, Switzerland. <laughs> His usual mode of transportation is skiing. He right. loves goats. <laughs> he and Donny Osmond wrote two albums in one night for share, and not just some crap either. We're talking all hits. Does that sound like a made up person to you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a fun alter ego for MCA, Nathaniel Hornblower. This was like, he did the whole like Taylor Swift, <laughs> Kanye West thing years before Kanye yeah. West did it. Except Michael Stipe, most likely, just like looked over, he's like, oh, that's fucking MCA. Because REM knew, they knew each other. Like, they knew each other well. Uh, but it was a fun bit. And like, so MCA doesn't have relatives? Yeah. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? <laughs> and of course, like years later, when MCA started directing videos himself, uh, the credit was always Nathaniel Hornblower because you, why not have one more fucking inside joke? <laughs> <laughs> now, based on what the Beastie Boys had already built with Check Your Head and since Sabotage had been released as a single ahead of the album, Ill Communication debuted on the Billboard charts at number one. Whoa, wow. Fuck it. <laughs> what? Number one. It's insane. Yeah, I should take mushrooms. <laughs> you should. It's changed my life. <laughs> Soon after, the Beastie Boys were asked to co-headline the fourth iteration of Lollapalooza, <laughs> known far and wide as the number one alternative music festival, and it was oh so coveted by alternative fans like the two of us who were too young to go. Yeah, th that's Gen X. Yeah, Lollapalooza was heaven to, you know, we were like 11, you know, 10, 11 years old, and it was just, it was like an otherworldly heaven that we would dare not visit. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even seem fucking real. 
Now, this was supposed to be the year that Nirvana finally played Lollapalooza, 1994. And after Kurt Cobain's suicide attempt in the early part of the year, prior to his actual suicide, Nirvana bowed out and the Beastie Boys co-headlined with the Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah, so what I had to do was Google, what the hell is Lollapalooza? Because <laughs> we were too young and I barely remember any of learning any of about this. So what I learned is that it started in 1991 by Perry Farrell, who, uh, from, uh, Jane's Addiction. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot. (laughs) Well, Jane's Addiction is somewhat of a forgettable band. We can, we can all forgive you for that. Yeah. He wanted, they're fine. Yeah. They were just, they had that one song. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, his band, Jane's Addiction, uh, he wanted to put together an insane, but huge farewell tour, like touring festival for his band, Jane's Addiction. (laughs) (laughs) So Perry, he was like, he's a, he's a, personality he's out there yeah yeah perry he's a bit of a character yeah a loon reading the dictionary he actually was just he said i was reading the dictionary (laughs) and he came across the word lollapalooza which means something or someone impressive or wonderful and the second definition was a giant swirling lollipop (laughs) and so he said that's it that's it that's the name and we're gonna put it on this off the wall traveling caravan of musicians you know going across all alternative genres you know the iced tea with his metal band uh blood count and body count uh, body count (laughs) (laughs) i do all the research Body <laughs> and, and like Nine Inch Nails and Susie and the Banshees, you know, like all kinds of different performances and, and hitting dozens of cities across the country. You know, this will be a, a, a place for young people to register, to vote, to hand out condoms, to sign petitions, to visit information booths and, and play carnival games for charities. Mm-hmm. And the Beastie Boys were like, yeah, that sounds lame. <laughs> the name is also lame. But we were going to do it because Kurt Cobain is cool. And then he bowed out. So I guess we're still going to just do this. Yeah. And they well, and they did. And they had a great time and they made the best of it. They, they, they brought in some of their friends like a tribe called Quest, joined them on tour, George Clinton and the P-Funk All-Stars. Yeah. This, by. La- this Lollapalooza sounds amazing. Like L7 played. Flaming Lips were on like the second stage before anybody knew who the fuck the Flaming Lips were. The Breeders. Uh, the Breeders. Yeah. Wow. The, this is one of the best years to see Lollapalooza without a doubt. Yeah. And also their old friends, Kate Schellenbach and Jill Kniff from uh, Luscious Jackson. Mm-hmm. They were playing on the side stage too, which is great. Should be a fun time. Even if everyone has to hang out with Billy Corgan. Uh, <laughs> Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins, who apparently is a beast on the basketball court. Yeah, actually. he's like what? 6'4"? 6'3". 6'3", yeah. But he plays with his combat boots on. So he's <laughs> probably like 6'7". Of course he does. <laughs> and that's the thing. They installed a basketball hoop. You know, the Beastie Boys were like, yeah, come in and play. And so they, you know, they get like Tribe Called Quest to come in and play and Parliament Funkadelic would play. And apparently Guided by Voices were insanely brutal. <laughs> so, you know, the festival went great. Yeah. The Beastie Boys did great. But what made this so special was that they invited a college kid from Indiana named Ian Rogers who was a huge fan of theirs and he had made the very first Beastie Boys website back during the early days of the internet in the mid 90s so probably like the first unofficial band website ever Mm -hmm. Uh, and and this impressed the Beasties so much that they asked him to join them on tour and so Ian comes in and they sit him down and they're like show us the internet because it's not even like the website it's like show us the whole internet we don't even know what this does 
<laughs> and he did. I mean, it must have been really awkward because if I remember the early internet days, yeah. it would it takes a while to download a single picture. This is going to take fucking for. I mean, this, this is in a day where like looking at it one set. Like I remember going to Spawn.com and I remember waiting for fucking for an hour to see a picture of the violator. <laughs> <laughs> it took fucking forever. And Ian's just sitting there and everyone's around him and all the Beastie Boys are like, oh, what does it do now? <laughs> and you know what? They, they really they really saw something in Ian and this idea, you know, and years later together with Ian, they built the first online radio station for their label. They, they released music online as MP3s, they tour diaries, photos, everything. Of course, when they released MP3s, uh, uh, Capitol records got mad at them for doing that, but they didn't care because they were visionaries. They, they could see the future years before the internet made that huge impact on the music world. And, And they and Ian Rogers were part of early internet history. Yeah. I mean, they really, were the first band to look at it and say like this is amazing like they were able to look at it and see a tool like it wasn't they weren't like other bands that saw it as like maybe a toy like it was like them and radiohead were really big in the early days of the internet for really using it to interact with the fans they knew that this was going to be a huge way to actually connect with people outside of you know gigantic fucking shows uh they were visionaries again Again and again. (laughs) So following the success of Lollapalooza, the Beastie Boys spread out a bit. For one, they released an EP of hardcore songs called Aglio e Olio, which is actually being released on vinyl this record store day on July 17th. So go speak to your local record store to get a copy. Cool. Very cool. Oh, yeah. Always with record store day. Always go and tell them what you want beforehand and they will order it for you. But after releasing the EP, the Beastie Boys actually toured as a hardcore band under the name of Quasar. Yeah, Quasar! <laughs> playing songs like this standout track from the Aglio e Olio EP at small 100-person venues in America and Japan. And of course, dressed up in costumes, in costumes. the entire fucking yes. time. <laughs> <laughs> It's the best hardcore song they ever did. It's great. They it's finally awesome. they finally figured it out. Well, first, Mike got a better drummer. And then he kept singing now. It's great. Well, the Beastie Boys also by this time had started their own music label. And they launched a magazine. Both of them called Grand Royal. Oh, yeah, the magazine. Like They, they have this expose on the revival of the mullet haircut. That was <laughs> riveting. Riveting. Hey, hey, Grand Royal was a, I mean, it was groundbreaking. It was a fantastic magazine. 
Now, while the magazine was cool in and of itself, the label released albums by Kate Schellenbach's band Luscious Jackson and solo material from Beastie Boys mainstays like DJ Hurricane and Money Mark, along with dozens of other albums like this highly surprising <laughs> tasty little slice of El Paso post-hardcore from the year 2000. drive-in yeah it's like i'm fucking 17 all over again <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I think they picked up uh, at the drive-in uh i i think because their original label or something went bust and so grand royal took them over and released this album which was a huge success which is so good for grand royal because they were like on the brink of bankruptcy yeah and then at the drive-in broke up and then grand royal <laughs> went into bankruptcy <laughs> <laughs> Just, so it just kept on going for another year at least. At least. Good. Still waiting for someone to tell me why Mars Volta is good. All right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All my friends in college just spent so much time. Like, no, man, you don't fucking get it. Like, you got to listen to the whole album. But they did fucking listen to the whole album so many times. And, and? And I still didn't get it. Why do you keep listening? <laughs> if you don't like it, you move on. I moved on in, in 2005. Wow, that was five years. <laughs> As far as extracurricular activities with the Beastie Boys went, none were as widely known, nor did any of them have as much of an impact as the Tibetan Freedom Concerts organized by MCA. Oh, yeah. MCA and a, and a bunch of other people. Yeah. The whole uh, reason yeah. why our generation knows the slogan, Free Tibet. I had a Free Tibet shirt. Yeah. I wore it every day. It was like on the picture of my license, picture of my passport. Like it was. <laughs> also, by the way, if you're going to wear a shirt every day, don't take a picture of your ID. Right. <laughs> um, unless you really the shirt want to match. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yes, I wore a free Tibet shirt when I was a kid. So yes, uh, this all started with MCA sampling a recording of Tibetan monks chanting for their song Shambhala on ill communication. And he was just thinking like, instead of just like clearing the sample and just giving them some money, why don't we give them the royalties to this song yeah. so they can really get like real money and we can give this to Tibetan aid organizations and stuff like that. But MCA did some research and he didn't really find any organizations that really seemed right. So he decided to start his own nonprofit organization called the Millarepa Fund. And, and that was just to make sure that the money would go to the right place. And so 
MCA was happy to fund this new charity, but he also wanted to create like awareness of the situation in Tibet. So the Beastie Boys, along with, you know, tons of help from their managers, they put together the Tibetan Freedom Concert in San Francisco, Golden Gate Bridge Park in 1996, which was this massive two day outdoor festival with like Tibetan speakers who had come up and they, they talked about their whole plight, uh, how they've been imprisoned and abused for decades by the Chinese military authorities and and in plenty of information booths all around and reading material on, on their stories and, and their cultures and, and practices in Tibet to educate the audience a little bit more, you mm-hmm. know. And um, I don't know how to add this. Uh, then Red Hot Chili Peppers came on stage. <laughs> And then they go on stage and they and they do their thing. Um, yeah, I want to come up. I want to say a couple of words about the zoo, 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 zang, the zang, the dong, dong. Does anybody want to know what I know about that, man? It's all about the Tibetan freedom. Dang, yeah. it, summer, come a kong, gong, ding. Come on, free Tibet, everybody. What does he say? <laughs> what does he say? The Tibetans don't even know. It's like, I one hot minute, man. I had to return that. I had to return that. It was not very good. It had a couple. I, my friends and Aeroplane are fun songs. It's okay. <laughs> and then and then Rage Against the Machine also played with the Beastie Boys headline. It was like it was huge. Great concert, yeah. yeah. And every summer for the next few years they held, you know, more Tibetan freedom concerts where up to fifty thousand people would be there and just checking out the whole thing. It was a massive turnout uh, and it did exactly what it set out to do, uh, to uh, make us all aware about these stories of, of occupied Tibet and it became kind of mainstream and a huge part of it was because of MCA. Yeah. And Richard Gere. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just had to say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something yeah, to do with it. Get credit where credit's due. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Remember the Richard 90s? Gere. Yeah. <laughs> you, remember, hey, you, remember the, you remember the 90s? You remember Richard Gere? Remember Pretty Woman? Pretty Woman. <laughs> Tibet. Tibet. The legends are true. Like overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Packages by Expedia. You were made to be rechargeable. We were made to package flights, hotels, and hammocks for less. Expedia. Made to travel. By the time the mid-90s had rolled around, the Beastie Boys had all been living in Los Angeles for almost a decade, ever since Ad-Rock had called them up to come meet the Dust Brothers prior to the recording of Paul's Boutique. But in the summer of 1996... MCA moved back to New York City and got a tiny studio apartment in Little Italy, trying to live as simply as possible owing to what he'd been learning about Buddhism since the beginning of the decade. But even though he tried living simply, New York was still New York, and he soon discovered that his apartment window was right below a shoot-the-freak street attraction featuring a very vocal bozo. (laughs) Ah, Miss Shoot-the-Freak. I don't even know what that is. Shoot the freak? Oh, man, it was a thing down in uh, Coney Island that was there for years and years. There was a guy, like, dressed up as a clown that would tell you, like, that you were ugly and that you were son of a bitch and, like, all oh, your fucking shoes suck. And you would thre- you would shoot him uh, to try to get him to dunk down into a booth. Oh. Yeah. That was... <laughs> you would fall into, like, dirty water. And this 
was uh, actually insane. <laughs> Lived above, it was in Little Italy on like one of those uh, street fairs that they have. So all day long was like some fucking guy sitting above a dirty tub of water going like, hey, yeah, you fucking suck. You fucking suck trying to put me in the fucking water, you <laughs> ugly piece of shit. Oh, man. All day long. Wow. <laughs> Just... it, it's a lost piece of New York City history. Maybe one day we'll get it back. Do we need it? <laughs> Do we? Do we? But even though MCA's arrangements weren't ideal, Ad-Rock and Mike D figured it was about time for them to return home as well. And once all three Beastie Boys were back in New York City, they finished work on what Ad-Rock considers to be their best oh, album. Yes, it's my favorite album! <laughs> Hello Nasty. Yes! came out and exactly at the moment where I moved to America. Yeah. Yes, it was hello nasty. It was everywhere. And I was like, no, oh, this is great. America's great. America. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like you said, uh, the guys came back to New York City to finish working on Hello Nasty. And now they're older. You know, they're in their 30s and they've been in a band for, what, 15 years at this point? Mm -hmm. You know, they, they've established their process and each time they, they tweak it a little bit. And so they're more focused on what they have to do. But sure, I mean, they'll, they'll break uh, maybe a little bit to play some boggle. Yeah. yeah. A couple games of boggle never hurt anyone. So, <laughs> but, but now they're professionals, though. Like, no more prank calling ice cream stores anymore, you know? <laughs> like, like, we're going to actually get this done. And in a, a lot of ways, uh, they were such a tight-knit group that they could work together and apart on the same album. Like Adrock spending hours coming up with samples by himself or recording parts of an instrument on, onto a tape machine and then to show the others. Like they would show each other sometimes. It would be like, okay, it'll be my turn this weekend or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then together they can work together. I mean, they've, they've already established this. They are family. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about the Beastie Boys is that, like, one thing that we talked about a lot, like, after, you know, Cookie Puss, after License to Ill, like, after those albums, like, the Beastie, remember how many times the Beastie Boys almost broke up? Yeah, like, <laughs> that's true. Like, and, but, like, right before Paul's, like, the Beastie Boys almost broke up so many fucking times, but the moment they were allowed to find their process, the moment they were allowed to just be themselves and to not have anybody else with bring anything into their fucking ear that's when they truly came together as a unit and just put out great album after great album after great album yeah yeah really they really did they put in the work they truly did like uh, mca also did the same like ad rock did although ad rock deserves a lot of credit for hello nasty but mca was also doing the same you know coming up with other sounds of inspiration that they might like and and mike d he also put in a lot of work but when it came to writing lyrics mm -hmm. for the songs though they had to take his phone away <laughs> because <laughs> he was just, just glued to his phone and, yeah. and this it's is 1999 now phones are fucking a problem this is like <laughs> and and, and so and they needed him at that point. They're like, Mike, we need you now because we're working 
on the lyrics together now because the last two albums, you know, Check Your Head and Ill Communication, they mostly wrote like their own lyrical sections of, mm. on their own and then they rapped it live with each other. Uh, but this time on Hello Nasty, they decided to rap more together, like switching off like the old days of License to Ill, you know, like emphasizing the last word of every verse, like jumping in and out, you know, mm-hmm. all that, all that fun stuff. Yeah. So to finish a song, they had to grab Mike's phone and just put it away. <laughs> and they put him in a vocal booth by himself with like a pen and paper. And they just played the same song on a loop. <laughs> and you're like, you are not getting out there until you write your part. <laughs> and once he did finally get it done and his phone was returned to him, they were able to finish this song, Remote Control. I love this song. Love it. But of course, the biggest song off of Hello Nasty, the one that fucking everyone our age knows, is the one that many consider to be the crowning achievement of the Beastie Boys, the culmination of a three-way artistic collaboration that began in the early 80s. This song was the cherry on top of an already accomplished career, the one that proved beyond doubt that the Beastie Boys were a true cultural force of the 20th century, all while rhyming the sickest rhymes of their lives that are all about how sick their rhymes are. Yes! Add part old song from the ill communication recording sessions, part sample reaching back to license to ill, part beat from a Bo Diddley album called Another Dimension, yeah. and part ad rock and the vocoder for the chorus, and you got Intergalactic. Well, now, don't you tell me to smile. You stick around. 
If you want to know how fucking huge this song was, when I was in high school, I used to go, I come from rural Texas, I used to go to this fucking dance hall once a month in this town called Rhineland, which was like, I mean, you go and all night you're hearing like George Strait, Gary Stewart, Garth Brooks, like this is a country ass fucking dance hall. <laughs> but always at one, like in 1999, at one point in the night you hear intergalactic planetary and this, the whole fucking place would explode like like all these fucking country ass kids like just fucking going nuts for the beastie boys (laughs) like right after fucking uh, she's acting single i'm drinking double yeah (laughs) yeah it was fucking crazy this yeah this song was huge Uh, the video was huge you know the one when they filmed in in tokyo and Mm -hmm. everything all tokyo yeah we want to see you again (laughs) directed by nathaniel hornblower oh yeah that's right that's right so dj hurricane he does not appear on this album um on hello nasty because he parted ways with the beastie boys uh kind of amicably although it was it was about money he was like how am i supposed to support my family by going on tour every four to six years you guys take forever to get this done but luckily the beastie boys had previously met this guy from san francisco who a few years before won the DJ battle for world supremacy in 1992 and again the next year. And I I think he kept winning so much they asked them to retire, (laughs) respectfully. (laughs) This guy's really, really good. He's fantastic. Yes, Mix Master Mike. Yeah. He was a huge fan of the Beastie Boys, amazing DJ. And when he met the guys, he made sure to let them know he was very interested in working with them. He even left voicemails on MCA's answering machine until they finally called him to work on Hello Nasty. And they put one of them on the album, actually. And they wrote a song about him and everything. That's how great he is. Yeah. Three MCs and one DJ. Yes. Hey, yo, Adam. What's up? This is Mixmaster Mike. I'm calling from Sacramento. Um, uh, I've been wanting to hook up with you. Um, maybe on some tracks. I got some shit right here. If you could... <laughs> my turntable to a wah <laughs> Cause nobody can do it like Mix Master can. Come on, I got the D double O, D double O style. Here we go again because it's been a while. Do me your favor, don't jump that down. I ride from Manhattan to the Miracle Mile. My name's Mike Dean, I'm the lady's choice. I wanna get next to you like Rolls Royce. Royce. You all gather round, I hear my golden voice. When it's time to run, you know what will get noise. Cruising like a fan boat on the glade, he'll tweak your ass. Across the cross lane, so watch your back when he takes the stage. Oh, send you off on a naked rampage. Three MCs and one DJ. We be getting down with no delay. Mix Master Mike, what you got to say? Walk out to the mic all the time. Sweet and sour like a tin to breathe. Fresh like a box of Krispy Kreme. Kenny Rogers Gambler is my gambling theme. Mix Master Mike with the scratch routine. Always updated in the know. No. You know what Don't ask me, cause I just don't know. I'm known to mob, 
gotta get down. Mixmaster, cut faster. <laughs> I mean, Mixmaster Mike is why this album's great. Yeah, like, it's he came why- in and did all the scratching, worked with them for a week, and they're just like, "Come on tour, <laughs> your your hours now." I mean, it is that uh, without him, Intergalactic would not have been the hit that it was. Like, it's just a, he was the uh, secret sauce in this entire fucking album. He elevated the Beastie Boys to the next fucking level. Yeah, like up to legends. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Now, after the Intergalactic single blew up, even before the album Hello Nasty was released, the Beastie Boys had another hit that was complimented by a video that I think was a parody of 60s Italian spy <laughs> movies. I'm not sure. Well, maybe. <laughs> but instead of using the album version for the video, the band chose instead to feature the delightful Fat Boy Slim remix, making the song and video for Body Moving about the most late 90s shit out there outside of a Jonathan Davis scat. Okay. Fucking <laughs> Google it. Okay. All right. <laughs> Check Your Head might be their most positive album, but this is the one that makes you feel good. Yeah, I always have to dance to it. Yeah, of course. But outside of all the great hip-hop tracks on this album, there's one fan-favorite song that's a standout. An MCA track that seems simultaneously out of place and right at home on Hello Nasty. Essentially, it's what a hundred mid-to-late 90s feel-good bands trying to write happy songs after grunge ultimately failed to achieve. <laughs> what? You get what you get. You get, what you get. I mean, yeah, you try stealing my sunshine, you know. It's... Oh, I love that song. Don't ever mess with that song. Well, this song is the end game of Positive Beastie Boys tracks. A song that makes you weepy without being sad in any way whatsoever, even before it was so deaf place in the Beastie Boys documentary. That song is I Don't Know.
beautiful song. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. It just it, there's some even just the guitar, like it it hits the cry button in me, no. <laughs> no. or like the tears button. Like it just fucking like I don't know why. Like it just fucking punches the tears button hard, Aww. but in a really nice way. Yeah, like, in a in a very um, deep way. Like it, it's one of the hardest emotions to elicit in a song, and MCA just figured it out. Yeah. Now, following Hello Nasty, the Beastie Boys did release three more albums, but none of them really had the same impact as anything from the 80s or 90s. Partly, their follow-up to Hello Nasty, called To the Five Burrows, was ruined because 9-11... Okay. It was ruined because of 9-11? What <laughs> <laughs> was it? You ruined our band! <laughs> no, it was ruined... By 9-11. Oh, by 9 yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a typo. Okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it was run by 9-11 because the Beastie Boys were in the process of recording it in downtown Manhattan when 9-11 happened. Right. But even though it's way too serious because that's unfortunately what every artist thought we needed back then when we did indeed need, as Ad-Rock put it, Chef Boyardee and farts. Yeah. That's what we fucking needed after 9-11, but everyone got super fucking serious. Um, there's still a great track or two on yeah. To the oh, Five yeah. Burrows. There's Absolutely. really is. Like, uh, for example, their uh, single to check it out is fucking great. Oh, what you what are you saying? Oh, you trekkies and TV addicts. Don't mean to this, don't mean to bring static. Oh, you Klingons in the fucking house. Grab your back street friend to get loud. Blow doors off inches. Grab you with the pinches. And no, I didn't retire. I snatch it off with the needle nose pliers. Blackies will overhaul. What you want you never seen before? Riding in the glazes. Like your teeth, you know what you're performing the album live like walking through the streets of new york that's so cool right from the subway station <laughs> yeah. and go all the way into the studio yeah and everyone's like oh shit that's a beastie boy yeah. <laughs> it's super fucking cool like they have such great like new york moments uh really in these like later years like there's uh a, a song from uh, 1999 that they released uh with uh sound
Sounds of Science, song called Alive, and they did a video for that. And the song's like pretty good, but the video itself is the Beastie Boys riding around New York City on little scooters. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and for some reason, I don't know how, but it like it feels like living in New York. Like it's just this we- it feels like a day in New York just like living here and wandering around and just seeing like not necessarily like the the monuments that you know New York by like you know the Brooklyn Bridge and World Trade Center and all that. Like it's just like those little snippets of living in New York City, the little snippets that you get where it's like, man, it's fucking great living here. <laughs> <laughs> like, how cool is it? Like this is just cool. It's great. They can absolutely they they convey that so well in their videos and i think it's always because they they make it everything low budget and it it is really them hanging around in new york with a camera yeah always so it's just like there's no sets there's no big shoots or anything it's just like can you hold this camera for me right now all right we're gonna do the video it's like right here in this deli yes nas yes all right and get some iced tea now as far as the last two albums go they feel kind of like placeholders it's like the band was trying to figure out their new process just like they'd done after paul's boutique but they just couldn't find the right direction and that's totally fine it's always good to try it always is and personally i think they got really fucking rattled by 9-11 a lot of artists got really rattled by 9-11 they had a hard time finding their way back after the 2000s it was i mean it was a it was a period of you don't know what's gonna happen next yeah I mean, and it's, you know, it's somewhat similar to how a lot of like contemporary artists have been broken by the last, you know, four or five years of America. That broke a lot of people. (laughs) It it really did. And here's to everyone finding their way back after all this shit. But even so, the Beastie Boys continued touring off each album they released. And even though they now had families and wives and such, shit still went off the rails from time to time on the road. Oh, yeah. Because even though they're what? They're in their late 30s and they're hitting their 40s at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I I remember there was this one show that uh, in 2007 when uh, they did this huge outdoor festival in Ireland. And and, and it it was like a big, big production that they were doing. And they were at this point, they're touring like big time style because they're huge stars now like they they each get their own tour bus they have musicians and roadies and managers assistants and a private chef to feed everyone on their tour like it's insane i mean they they won grammys i mean they're millionaires at this point and so on this particular uh day in ireland at that festival adrock decides he wants to get high on some marijuana (laughs) but his throat is kind of scratchy you see and this is before the show right before they're going to go on so he's like i don't want to mess up my throat so much so he asked the private chef if he could bake him some cookies with pot in them ah Yes. And so the chef said, yeah, okay, I can totally do that. You're the boss. And he whipped up some nice, a nice plate of freshly baked cookies. And, and so he handed them to Adrock and, <laughs> and backstage Adrock eats a cookie and he shares one with Alfredo, uh, their touring drummer at the time. And after a little while, uh, they look at each other and they say, do you feel anything? No, no, me neither. Huh? Why don't we eat another one? Bad idea. Mistake. (laughs) Mistake. They're like, okay, let's just eat another one. These are very small anyways. And then you can imagine Mm -hmm. that uh, after eating a couple more cookies, (laughs) that within moments, Adrock is 
like suspended in midair. <laughs> and he's then, and all of a sudden he's like back on the couch. And everyone else in the room seems to be floating away. Like, where are they going? And Ed Rock's voice in his head like says to him, like, you're so fucked up right now. <laughs> Just move your head every now and then you'll be okay. All right. All right. We think so at least. And he's like, who's we? We. It's we. <laughs> and as Ed Rock is sitting there talking to his thoughts, Money Mark comes in and says, hey, Adrock, Adrock, I, I want you to meet Sally and this young girl in this like motorized like wheelchair, like completely paraplegic uh, woman girl. She just kind of like zooms in to the room, <laughs> and Mark is like, "She's been dying to meet you." <laughs> and Sally just zips up to the couch and, and just says, "Like, hey, thanks. I'm a really big fan of yours. I hope this is okay." And she's saying this while facing Adrock's twitching face. <laughs> And he's just not moving. And, and eventually he said he was able to go, yeah. <laughs> Hi. Hi. And then he had to just push past that girl, sorry, and run to the bathroom. And he just starts splashing water in his face. He's trying to snap out of it. He's just like, I, come on, come on. You're about to go on stage in like 15 minutes. And he just can't. So he starts going through the backstage area, just looking for his bandmates. You know, since they're at this huge music festival, he sees like Paul Simon in front of Clash. He's like, get the fuck away, Paul. I need to find everyone. I can't talk to punk legend right now. Must find my friends. And then somehow like Mike just came up suddenly and he goes, hey, buddy. Are, are, hey, are you OK, man? And Adrog was like, oh, God, oh God, thank God, thank God. We need to have an emergency band meet i'm telling i'm telling him we need to have a, i'm telling him and mike's like who are you talking to myself but that's not important okay we need to have an emergency band meeting now all right so he gets all the guys together and adrock explains what happened and the cookies and everything and the, and the guys just laugh and laugh and, and then once they were like done laughing eventually they handed him some tea and said it'll be okay adrock it'll mm -hmm. be okay we'll help you through this <laughs> they even held his hands because he couldn't even hold himself up. <laughs> and they, they get him on the stage. You know, the roadie hands Adrock his guitar. He's like, here, hold this. Now go stand there. <laughs> and when the show starts, he kind of just stood there. Adrock's just standing there. He, he's not even playing his guitar or singing or anything. All he could do is watch. <laughs> just scanning the room. And he sees Alfredo, who's also frozen solid. <laughs> he also ate the cookies. <laughs> and then he looks around and he starts to think, oh no, I need to make this work. I really do. Our drum Drummer can't even drum right now. We need to get this going. So somehow Adrock got it together and was able to play the whole set with his bandmates who will never let him forget it. <laughs> Ever. That sounds like a fucking nightmare. If you're going to eat a cookie, wait an hour. Wait two, hour and a half. Okay, wait. Okay, don't listen to me. Because I don't know about this, but... Uh, <laughs> Wait double the time that it's supposed to take to kick in, and then you can try more. <laughs> but what if you have friends? <laughs> Don't listen to them. Poor Sally. They're wrong. <laughs> now, had things gone different, we think that the Beastie Boys probably had at least one more great album left yeah. to go, and maybe more than that. You never know. But tragically, even one more album just wasn't in the cards. Yeah, so in 2009, MCA announced that he was diagnosed with cancer uh, in his uh, parotid gland, which is like near the throat, uh, the, the lymph nodes area. Very rare cancer. Yeah, very super rare. Uh, it was all localized there, so he underwent surgery and radiation for a period of time, but the cancer kept coming back. And on May 4th, 
2012, Adam Yao died at the age of 47. You know, he left behind a wife and a daughter and his two best friends that he had seen and worked with nearly every day since they were 16. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and of course, a, a mountain of work and 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 charity stuff and and everything, everything. It, it just it was a horrible loss, and uh, it just felt odd. Yeah, but like, it, it was uh, it was just an odd like when MCA dies, like MCA died. I know like, like he's, and, he's dead. That's uh, it. Just it felt very odd. And I never got to see them live like yeah, i almost did I but but mike d had a, a bicycle accident mm-hmm. <laughs> um and he broke his like collarbone and yeah. so they canceled that show i think i was supposed to go see which is good because my parents probably would never let me go to buffalo by myself <laughs> yeah to go see beastie boys and rage against the machine as a minor um <laughs> you know like hundreds of miles away from home yeah. uh so but I, and, it, and it was always one of those things especially since i was a fan of the beastie boys for like what 30 years uh and, and for the last 30 years of my of my whole life <laughs> and uh and the fact that that just like they were always just there yeah they were always there and i in a, in a way almost even took them for granted in that sense of like oh yeah they're there they're always here they're they're always in new york or they're always somewhere and they're always releasing stuff and they're always showing up and popping up and then like now they're not and it just it's such a strange weird kind of very sad feeling. It is. I mean, the, the things about MCA is that, yeah, I mean, his life was cut way too short and his death was tragic, but he did leave behind a great life. Yeah. Uh, he did live a wonderful life and left behind a, a, a fantastic body of work and a, a legacy of goodness. I mean, how many people can say that, that they leave behind a legacy of goodness uh, that helped a lot of people and made a lot of people happy? So while his life was short, it was great. Yeah, that's true. Now, after the untimely passing of MCA, Adam Horowitz and Mike Diamond went on record saying that they were disbanding because they could never be the Beastie Boys without Adam Yauk. But the question we're left with here is what lives on now that the Beastie Boys are gone forever? And I think something that all three of them said back when MCA was still alive applies. In a late career interview, MCA started it off saying that even though hip-hop is constantly referencing the past and giving deference to what came before, it's also about the new, the current, the here and now of what's right in front of your face. Mike D then picked up the thread and said that hip-hop is analogous to New York in the way that New York City is always changing while still paying deference to the past. Mm. Then, when Ad-Rock asked Mike D if he was going to say that New York is hip-hop, Mike D nodded and said that he absolutely was. And in saying this, the Beastie Boys might as well have been describing themselves, passing the mic in the interview in the triple threat style they picked up from the Treacherous Three so many years before. See, as New York City has changed from the dangerous, artistically explosive 70s and 80s to whatever the fuck it's becoming now. We don't know. I have no idea. Well, whatever. (laughs) The Beastie Boys changed too. Not because they were trying to, but because, like New York, they just couldn't help it. Like New York City, change was baked into the Beastie Boys' DNA. And while the Beastie Boys might be done, their impact will never fade. See, the history of New York City haunts the lives of every New Yorker every day in ways both good and bad. You can still feel it in the sidewalks and subway stations, no matter how many fucking condos and aioli-soaked bullshit restaurants replace the walk-ups and punk bars that we miss so fucking much. No, why? But why? Why put garlic (laughs) and mayo? Sorry, continue, continue. 
And just as the history of New York is forever a part of the lives of everyday New Yorkers, so too are the Beastie Boys always going to be a part of the cultural fabric of America, whether people are aware of it or not. See, even if we're wrong, even if Sabotage and Intergalactic and all the others are forgotten in a hundred years, the influence that these three punks from New York had on American culture and therefore world culture cannot be changed. And that influence will live on as a part of this country's DNA for as long as the experiment survives. Wow. That's the Beastie Boys. That's the Beastie Boys. That's the Beastie Boys. We did it. That's New York. That's New York. Yes. <laughs> it's hip hop and alternative. And, and we did it. We did it. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, God. I don't know what to do. I sh oh. Should I put on my clothes again? I don't know. I'm just, <laughs> this is insane. This is crazy. Thank you so much, everybody, for uh, taking this journey with us. Uh, this has been so much fun to do. It's been very fucking difficult. Again, Carolina, I want to thank you for all of the fucking work Never you did. Never ordering that avocado salad again. <laughs> but yes, thank you. And thank you, Marcus. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. You, you know, know, you do so much. Much. You do. I've learned so much in this past couple of years. It's this is amazing, and I'm really glad that we were able to do something like this. Yeah, so was I. Like this was definitely a challenge. Uh, we had to learn a lot for this series. Yes. But... Oh yeah. Speaking of which, there were a couple extra books that uh, that were added again. <laughs> uh, so uh, check the technique by Brian Coleman. There's a great chapter on uh, check your head, uh, just a recording of that album, and also uh, a great chapter on Trap Called Quest, which is fantastic. And then there's also the Beastie Boys anthology, The Sounds of Science. Mm -hmm. There's the book and the and the CDs. And uh, Red Bull Music Academy, just uh, so helpful. Uh, RedBullMusicAcademy.com, amazing. Just so many lectures, and it, I I got to you know hear uh, everything about uh, Mario C uh, coming from their words. Q-tip. So I mean, there's a million interviews. I've been using it for this whole series, so it's fantastic. So thank you. And Quest Love Supreme interviews as well. That that podcast is great. I you know we don't really listen to podcasts very often. Yeah. But but that one is fantastic. I think <laughs> I'm going to start listening to that one. It's it's really good. And Mike D has an Echo Chamber radio show that I I, I picked up a lot of really good information from that too. Uh, and so and the interviews that you know I, I interviewed Jeremy Shatton and Nick Martin and uh, Jack Rabbit and Adam Dubin. Thank you guys so much for like giving me a little bit of time to just answer some questions. I had insane questions. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I think Jeremy was like, wow, that's very specific. So thank you so much for them, you know, just writing back and talking to me and such nice people and um and that's it and i also want to thank uh dan Leroy uh for uh answering my questions about paul's boutique and for you know his wonderful books on yeah. that seminal album uh so thank you very much and also uh thank you to uh ben westhoff for answering uh questions about the history of hip-hop uh his book uh original gangsters the untold story of dr dre easy e ice cube tupac Shakur, and the birth of west coast rap is phenomenal uh if you're interested interested at all in this stuff check out his book and of course also check out dan Leroy's uh, 33 and a third on paul's boutique and uh his book for whom the cowbell tolls which was like a, a sequel to his 33 and a third Very so cool. many great books so many great resources uh and uh, and so many great fans I'll say. Yeah. You guys. You guys everyone's great. <laughs> Thank you to Rob Oki for editing our series. You, of course. You're, you're lifesaver. Thank mm -hmm. you. And 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 that's it. I mean, I can't believe it. Like, I, I, I can keep talking forever, but I we shouldn't. I also want to thank research assistant Sean Aitchison. Uh, he did a fantastic job uh, helping out with uh, collating information about the Beastie Boys. It's a very complicated series. It's a very complicated story. So thank you, Sean, for your work on that.
Absolutely. <sighs> okay, so I guess we'll just, uh, we'll go home now. <laughs> Before we get to our band of the week, uh, I want to tell you guys what is going to happen with No Dogs in Space Season 2. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have to go home and start Season 2 right now. Jeez, please. Yeah, we're going to be, uh, Season 2, we're going to take uh, a little bit of a break to get ahead because, you know, uh, I'm going to be going on tour this fall with Last Podcast on the Left, so we want to make sure that we get plenty far ahead for Season 2 because this was season 1.5. Or 1.1. 1.1. Okay, I don't know how many names we gave it. (laughs) 1.35. Yeah, but season two is going to be coming in a a couple of months. Uh, I think we can go ahead and just say what season two is going to be about. It's going to be about alternative. Yeah. Uh, And we can tell you the first band we're starting with, we're going to be starting way back in the beginning with the fucking Velvet Underground. Yep. So that's going to be... Band one for yeah, right. season two right. of No Ducks in Space. Oh man, <laughs> we're starting way back, and we're we're working out our list for every uh, band that we're going to be covering uh, next season. But thanks everybody so much for all the kind words they've had about uh, season one and season one point one five six seven nine three. Yes, that's uh, a better name. <laughs> uh, but we uh, are still going to be playing a band this week for the very last episode of this season. Of course, we have bands that send us in. You, the listener, y'all are so fucking creative and you have so many great bands out there yes uh if you have a band send it to no dogs in space at gmail.com and we're going to start playing bands again when we come back for season two uh the band for the last episode of season 1.9467 is dry heave yes and it's spelled D-R-I-H-I-E-V. Okay, it's a little complicated, but I got it. Hey, they're fucking great. They're out of yeah. Calgary. Uh, out of their Canadian band. Uh, it's industrial noise punk. This shit <laughs> is amazing. Great. I love this. Uh, you can check them out at dryheave.bandcamp.com. That's again, that's D-R-I-H-I-E-V.bandcamp.com. This song is called Salt. Thank you so much, everybody. Again, can't thank you enough. Yeah. Uh, and if you want to know Ducks and Space t-shirt, go to lastpodcastmerch.com. Yeah, absolutely. And listen to Professional Friends. I do a show with me and my friends uh, every week. So while we're on hiatus, we'll we'll be putting those out. Just a little, a little bit of chatting. Check it out. It's yeah. a really fun show. Yeah. Did you get that? Oh, I got that. <laughs> All right. Let's go now. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.
The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.